What you saw is that some people, entrepreneurs said, screw it, I'm going to try this, right? I'm going to start selling cannabis. I'm going to start growing it. I'm going to rent out a space and I'm going to also start selling it. I'm going to get a little shop somewhere and begin selling marijuana and see what happens. And so they risked going to jail. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. Sid here, Sid Finkelstein. My guest today is Chris Walsh. This is the 140th episode in the Sidcast. Chris Walsh is the founding editor of Marijuana Business Daily. He launched the company in 2011, becoming the first journalist in the U.S. to focus exclusively on covering the business of cannabis. He guides, of course, the vision of the company, its sister publication, Hemp Industry Daily, and is heavily involved in educating mainstream industries and audiences on the cannabis industry. He's got a very big presence in the media, has been in New York Times, NPR, CNBC, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're going to talk about today is this industry, cannabis industry. We all know how much it's grown. It's been pretty dramatic. We probably all have friends, if not ourselves, that have used cannabis for medical or recreational purposes. Around the U.S., different states are at different stages of their support and their regulation for cannabis usage. And when you think about it, it's just so different than what it was not that long ago when so many people were sent to prison for possession of a very small amount of marijuana and was a scandal, was a disaster and created tremendous hardship for so many people. And then finally, now we are seeing different forms of legalization. And it's fascinating to see kind of what's going on, what's behind it. What's the business like? How's it growing? And where's it going to go? I've wondered for a while, are these cannabis companies going to be acquired by big companies? Is it going to become a pharma, you know, a pharmaceutical, where it's just one other component of other pharmaceutical drugs that a big company, a Merck, for example, uh, might have, or a Pfizer for that matter? Or alternatively, is this something that will fall under the umbrella of tobacco? Tobacco makers, Philip Morris, etc. they've created a giant business and cannabis while it has certainly some benefits that cigarettes do not around medicinal purposes, is still in the same field, the same umbrella. And regardless of what we might think about cigarette companies, from a business point of view, it's interesting to think about how they might meld together. And then there's also big CPG, consumer packaged goods companies. Is this something that Procter & Gamble and Unilever are going to get involved in at some point? There's a lot of legislation that still has to change. A lot of things that have to change for that to happen. We're in the early stages of a fascinating industry. So Chris Walsh is really well-placed to talk about what's going on, what are the trends, what's happening in Canada, which is one of the places really where marijuana, not usage as much as business and the business of cannabis entrepreneurs has really taken off because in Canada, cannabis has been legalized on a national basis, which is not the case in the U.S. So there's just a lot to talk about. It's really an interesting industry. And an industry that we're seeing still in the very earliest stages. So Chris, very engaging, lots of interesting stories and examples, and kind of a deep dive into an industry that some of us know a little bit about, maybe some of us know a lot about, but most of us are probably still wondering about. So on the Sidcast, Chris Walsh. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid, Sid Finkelstein. And today my guest is Chris Walsh. Hi, Chris. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining me. We got a lot to talk about. You've been at the center of an exploding industry around marijuana. It's changing dramatically. It's got a global side to it. It's got a public policy side to it. But I want to start by asking how a nice guy like you got involved in this business. <laughs> well, I actually was a mainstream journalism. And actually, before we go further, I'll just point out I have terrible allergies right now. So I haven't consumed any product. I, I just, uh, <laughs> I've had them for about two weeks and it won't go away. Basically, I was a mainstream journalist, business journalist working for Metro newspapers and covered the economy and high tech and sports business and all these different things. And then I moved to South Korea in my early 30s and just figured, hey, I want to try something different. If I'm going to live abroad, this is going to be the time. So when I came back to the U.S. in 2011, actually, when I had left for South Korea from Denver, Colorado, 
There were no dispensaries, medical cannabis dispensaries in Colorado. When I came back two years later, there were more dispensaries than Starbucks in Denver. And so there was this whole industry that had cropped up literally overnight in Colorado, in California, in Washington state, and a lot of these Western states that pioneered medical cannabis legalization. So long story short, at that time, with a background in journalism, I was finishing up my MBA and two women had decided to launch a business-to-business trade publication for the cannabis industry, and it intrigued me. I had wanted to get out of mainstream journalism because I saw the writing on the wall and where that was going, and this just sounded like a fresh, fun opportunity to help a nascent industry. I didn't really have a personal connection to cannabis. I rarely used, did some in college and every now and then since then. But at that time, I didn't come from that culture. It wasn't something I used frequently, but it was the business opportunity. It was the business side to cover what I thought would be a fascinating industry. And it has been absolutely a fascinating industry and a crazy journey over the last decade. What happened with South Korea? That's an unusual thing to do. (laughs) You know, in mainstream journalism, there was fraught with layoffs, an uncertain future, So I was getting my MBA and I tried something different. So there was an opening and I had a connection in Seoul and it was a newspaper there and it was a mainstream newspaper. But I thought, hey, if I'm going to be doing this, I'll do it overseas and how I like living somewhere else. I was in Seoul and I was an editor and we were covering everything from Hyundai and LG, all these giant South Korean companies. But then I get dragged into the inevitable threats from North Korea to nuke Seoul. So it was just a fascinating life experience and professional one as well, because it eventually led to what I'm doing now, because when I returned to the U.S., I was just starting from scratch and figuring out what I wanted to do. In the right place at the right time, in a way. Absolutely. Certainly the timing, because things were just starting to take off. Is there a cannabis industry in South Korea? Just curious. They've passed some laws to allow medical cannabis, but like we've seen outside of the U.S. and Canada, most of these countries that pass cannabis laws take a long time to actually get their industries up and running, and they look very, very different than here in the U.S., Actually, South Korea has liberalized its cannabis laws to some degree, like 30 plus other countries, but it's not a big market or anything. Actually, when you think about, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but so I'm from Canada originally, lived in the U.S. for a long, long time. And in some provinces in Canada, there are liquor commissions or liquor stores. Actually, I don't have to go to Canada. I live in New Hampshire and there are New Hampshire state liquor stores. This is the only place you're going to buy liquor. Cannabis is certainly analogous to that. And I'm sure when people think about how is it going to grow, how is it going to change, you look at comparable industries and we'll talk about pharma and consumer products in a bit. But alcohol certainly is maybe the first one you think about. I don't know whether you know this about the rest of the world or even South Korea, but to what extent is that model in place of having a lot of state control and ownership been the way that the cannabis market has developed? It hasn't really developed that way. And I was just in Toronto and every time I go to Canada, everything being run by the country, you know, or the province in terms of liquor stores is still bizarre to me. I didn't realize that was the case in New Hampshire either. But when it comes to cannabis, every state in the U.S. has done it completely differently. And now you're seeing Canada had started off with state control of the cannabis stores, but that has broadened that. So I was just in Toronto and there was some U.S. brands like Cookies had their retail store out there. So even Canada has loosened up on that. But across the U.S., it's controlled by the state in the sense of regulations, but the state isn't running the dispensaries or the retail stores. You do have private Increasingly, and in the future, you'll have public companies running these stores. So I can't compare it to alcohol. I can't compare it to anything because it really depends on the state you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Private companies and individuals run these operations, but the regulations around them are so dramatically different from state to state and even region to region. The East Coast has kind of come up with its own similar models across the state that have legalized there. And those are very different than what you find in California. In terms of license caps, types of licenses, the regulations around them, again, how many licenses they're granting, whether out-of-state investment is involved, what kind of controls are on the industry. It's just all over the board. That has got to make it more difficult to create multi-state, to start consolidating and creating bigger companies. I guess there are some restrictions on whether you can have out-of-state ownership or other, you can get around that by having some investors, I suppose, or maybe some of the executives being in-state. 
How has that played out? Has that been a real restriction? The fact that you have all these different laws and regulations state by state for companies that want to grow and expand into multiple states? Yeah, that's a very timely question because for many years, when the industry first started to flourish 10, 11 years ago, you couldn't really expand out of state and you couldn't really expand outside your city. A lot of the companies were just very locally based, uh, very mom and pop. And there wasn't a real path forward at that time to expanding beyond your state, creating a national brand, because in every state you had to win a license and some like Colorado did bar outside investment. So as what's happened is that has loosened up and companies have found ways to get around these barriers. You can't ship cannabis across state lines, right? So if you're making infused gummy bears or chocolates or just the marijuana flower, you can't have centralized distribution in Colorado and ship it to California and to Massachusetts and to Florida. You just can't do that. So they've had to come up with these partnerships, licensing deals, franchising deals, giving their IP to a trusted partner to develop their products in the way they do. Then that's been fraught with issues and challenges, but companies have started to do that. A state like Colorado did bar outside investment. So to your question there is what happened is all of these, we call them multi-state operators. And these are basically the companies that are going national into multiple states, Mm -hmm. in some cases, two dozen and developing well-known brands. Colorado pioneered a lot of this industry, but very few of the companies are among the biggest in the country now because they couldn't get the capital. They couldn't get the expertise to expand into multiple states in a critical period when that was happening across the country. So that was a detriment to states that didn't allow that. The companies in those states weren't able to develop these large national brands and lead the industry. Some of these companies now, these MSOs, these multi-state operators, they're based in Illinois. They're based on the East Coast. These are newer markets, but they have the right climate, the right expertise, the access to capital. And when I say expertise, I mean the people from the CPG world, from the mainstream retail world who came in, from the mainstream finance world who know how to grow and scale to build a brand. Those companies have become the largest ones in the industry. But we have seen that happen. You are seeing the evolution of the cannabis industry. And there are a handful of these MSOs that are in anywhere from 10 to 25 states. And they'll be in many more. They'll be in every state one day. And they're getting having to get creative in how they do it. In some cases, they're buying licenses. In some cases, they're winning them on their own. In some cases, they're partnering. It's all over the board. And so that variety of mechanisms to grow and create a national footprint completely depends on ways to deal with the various state regulations. And your ability to figure it out, having the expertise on your staff to not only figure out how to get into these markets, but then to manage your business in all of these cohesive, effective way without everything going off the rails. Because it could get very difficult. And I guess the underlying reason why this or the strategies that are being followed today is because cannabis is illegal on a federal basis as we speak, right? They see the cannabis industry, they see legalization, they see it in the headlines, right? They see their state do it. They see dispensaries open up. Medical cannabis is legal in 39 states plus D.C. It's almost across the entire U.S. Recreational is 19 states plus D.C. So most people in the country are touched by this in some fashion. But to your point, it's federally illegal. So you have a very unique situation where you've got 25 to $27 billion in sales every year, according to estimates in our Marijuana Business Factbook, this kind of comprehensive research report on the industry we do every year, 25 to $27 billion in retail sales, yet government says it's federally legal. And then you've got all these crazy situations because of that, because marijuana is still listed as a schedule one drug, you know, up there with heroin. Mm. So, you know, if there's been um, very little research, very little effective research done on this plant to back up these claims that you see to back up the industry, And then you have the industry doesn't have access to traditional banking. And so it can be very difficult for these companies to get bank accounts. Hmm. You know, they might be dealing with millions of dollars. They've got to pay their employees. They've got to pay their rent. And in some cases, they can't find bank accounts or they're kicked off and have to keep jumping between banks. And then they can't take common tax deductions either that every other business can. So these are the types of factors that play in. It's a very complex industry. It's difficult. Some people think you make millions overnight. Well, because of these issues, you don't. I think not that long ago, there was a boom in the market. Maybe it's when the Canadian companies started to pop up pretty quickly and maybe they started to buy each other a bit as well. 
I don't know whether it's right to say the market collapsed, but certainly it wasn't where it was. So maybe you could describe, first of all, the evolution of the business or the marketplace for cannabis. But also, as you describe that over time, maybe from the earliest days when you were there really right at the beginning, if you go back a dozen years, lots of industries are cyclical. So that's no big deal to say it's a cyclical industry. But is this a temporary feature because of some of the reasons we've talked about, regulatory reasons? Or is this a long-term, is this going to always be a heavily cyclical type of industry? Or it's just, you can't really tell at this stage. Yeah, I think it's important to draw the distinction between the U.S. and Canadian markets. So the U.S. market is still growing and it's growing rapidly. It actually hit records during COVID. 2020 was an amazing year for the cannabis industry in the U.S. Even mature states like Colorado and Washington and Oregon that were among the first to legalize recreational years ago and get their markets going saw record growth, record sales, in some cases 50% up from the previous year. And as what you saw was COVID with people staying home, with people not working as much, with people have more disposable income because they were getting government checks that were tied to COVID relief and getting bored too. You saw this huge spike in sales in 2020. And in 2021, it was still very impressive. This year in some markets, it's tapered off a bit and might be a little bit down, but that was a massive spike, an unexpected spike. And then it maintained that level in 2021. So there's really no fundamental weakness behind the market that actually has been growing. You have new states that are growing rapidly too. That's been the situation recently in the US. In Canada, it's very different. Canada legalized recreational marijuana so adults can use for any reason. They legalize that federally. And medical cannabis is already legal there federally as well. And as what happened is there was a bunch of hype in Canada. This was a couple of years ago when they legalized. And it was the classic business tale of exuberance and too much optimism, bad business practices because of all that and bad decision making. So in Canada is what you saw, a great milestone development, legalizing marijuana at the federal level for recreational purposes. And then all this money came into the market and a lot of bad decisions. And so a lot of these companies overhyped the market. They were using faulty estimates about how big it would be. What you saw in Canada was a retrenchment of demand didn't, didn't get to the levels that these companies predicted. They made huge investments. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on new greenhouses and technology. They looked expanding into Europe, South America. And that is what happened is in Canada, Again, that demand didn't match up. There was too much money flowing in to support. The estimates were off, so it didn't support all these business plans. And internationally, too, these markets took a lot longer to develop. So to your point, in Canada is what we did see and are still working through is that type of situation where there's been a correction and they were still trying to figure out where demand and ultimately the size of the market will end up. But in the U.S., it's been growth. So you asked from the early days to now. You know, when we first started, about 10 or 11 states in the U.S. had legalized medical cannabis. That's all we were focused on. That was the industry. There was no federal oversight or regulation, just like today. And what's interesting is at that time, many of the states didn't even have regulations. So this was all a new thing. So states, voters went to the polls over many years in some Western states and legalized medical cannabis. But because it was still illegal federally, the states and the business community and anyone with anything to do with cannabis didn't know what to do, right? It's like, oh, well, it's legal in my state, but it's illegal federally. So it's what you saw is that some people, entrepreneurs said, screw it, I'm going to try this, right? I'm going to start selling cannabis. I'm going to start growing it. I'm going to rent out a space and I'm going to also start selling it. I'm going to get a little shop somewhere and begin selling marijuana and see what happens. And so they risked going to jail. They risked a lot of things. So because of that situation, the people involved in the business at that time mostly were not from the mainstream business world. These were, in some cases, people on the fringes of society. They likely had been using cannabis quite frequently, likely growing in their house, their basement, participating in the illicit market. That's what you saw in the early days. And so they took these risks. And so what happened is, as this started to take off in these states, lawmakers said, whoa, 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 what's going on? Okay, it is legal. So we need to put a framework around what you're doing because there's sign spinners on the corner advertising 50% off joints at a well-trafficked intersection where parents are taking their kids to school. Like, this isn't what we want. We don't want this in your face. And billboards were popping up with marijuana leaves and burning joints. And so these states went and said, we got to regulate this industry. So they were starting from scratch. There was no blueprint for this. So they just had to figure out how are we going to regulate marijuana industry that's 
illegal federally. So long story short, you saw eventually every state that had legalized and sales had cropped up, went back, established regulations, licenses for business, costs tied to those licenses, things like security protocols and guidelines and a host of other things. Then you saw this kind of wave of these states implementing regulations. And then as new states started to legalize, they looked at it. They would pick and choose from those other states what they thought was working on the regulatory front and then also introduce new things. Some of the East Coast states like Massachusetts, they had very strict regulations around testing that proved unworkable and they had to go back. But again, I give these people a lot of credit. They got a lot of grief, lawmakers and regulators, but they had to take a very controversial subject and industry and figure out how to regulate it. And that's what they've done over time. And it's not perfect. And every state is different. So now you're in this environment where I mentioned 39 states now have legalized. They all have their own rules around medical cannabis, how businesses can operate, what the requirements are, what the costs are all over the board. And then you've also seen them have to do it with recreational marijuana, which is a whole nother area they have to figure out and figure out how to regulate that and keep it out of the hands of kids and make sure it's not a detriment to communities. Along the way, what you've seen is this industry has professionalized because it's regulated. It's still very controversial, the types of regulations, but it's professionalized now. And the latest wave is mainstream professionals coming into the industry and investors. So a lot of these bigger companies now are tapping, as I mentioned earlier, people from CPG, people from big tech, people with legit business backgrounds that have helped grow some big corporate names that have started their own and then sold their own companies in other industries that are bringing their skill set to cannabis. Maybe they have no connection to cannabis like I did, and they just see it as a business opportunity, or maybe they always had a connection to it and now have a path forward. This has kind of been the evolution of the industry. Very interesting. What are uh, some of the biggest companies in the U.S. right now? They're mostly these MSOs, and a lot of them are publicly traded, and they trade typically in the Canadian stock exchanges because of the federal situation here. These include TrueLeave, which is based out of Florida and is in multiple states now, and CuraLeaf. These are some of the bigger ones. There's Verano, there's Pharmacan, there's about a dozen Fairly large for this industry companies. And you, then you have another tier that are smaller. They're in multiple, maybe four or five states. And these companies I'm talking about typically are vertically integrated. So what I mean by that is they basically have licenses to do all or most parts of the supply chain. So that's growing cultivation. And then that's processing it. And a lot of times that's extracting the oils, THC, CBD. Everyone's heard about CBD recently and taking that out of the plant that it could be used in other types of products. And then they might develop their own infused products. So these are everything from pills and capsules and little things you put under your tongue to gummy bears and chocolates and mints, bath bombs. There's a lot of things you could put CBD and THC. And so there's a whole array of of products, very CPG-like products that we consume every day that have cannabis in them. So these big companies do that too, in many cases. And they also operate the retail stores. So in almost every state, there's different licenses for each of these areas of the supply chain that you have to win. So these companies are connecting at all. And that's a very complicated business model because you have to be an expert at growing a plant. Then you have to be an expert at processing it, extracting things from it. Then you have to be an expert at developing consumer products from it. And then you have to be an expert at retail, right? And they all require different things. And then you have to meet all those regulations. The biggest companies in the industry do all of these now. And the ones I mentioned are vertically integrated. But then you have some that are just retail chains and they've expanded into multiple states. And as all they do is primarily run retail operations, maybe make some products. There's a whole nother sphere of this industry that most people don't realize is there. And that's like us at MJ Biz. It's all the companies that provide services to the industry or to consumers. So, you know, we don't touch the plant. We do news, market research, analysis, data, and trade shows for the industry. There's technology companies, there's consultants, there's equipment manufacturers. There's a huge ecosystem, you know, billions of dollars in sales a year of companies that don't touch the plant. So you also have that. You have bigger companies, including Akerna, which is publicly traded, which is a point of sale software for the industry and other things around that. So it's really a growing, diverse industry. But when you rake it up to others, it's not sophisticated. The amount of capital coming in isn't as big and the revenues aren't as huge, but it'll get there. That is a really interesting summary of where we're at when you describe the extent of vertical integration. I think in many, many industries, 
they start that way. And over time, companies become deep experts. And you have the Walmarts of the world that come up and are tough to beat in the retail sector, but they're not manufacturing anything. But that's not the way it is mostly, I think, because of the regulations as you described. It makes me think about one other thing, which is cannabis, it's a plant and it's grown. And so it's an agricultural product, even though it's done I don't know where it's done. I think there may be out in some fields in some places, but it's also inside in a lot of places as well. Grapes are agriculture and they are used to make wine. And so in the wine business, you have an entire, you talk about this kind of industry, the ecosystem has grown up around it. You have all these people that are experts who will rate the wines. Robert Parker Review is all it takes to get a wine selling for a lot more than ever before. I don't need to be facetious about it. You know, people that know good food know that the terroir, the soil is really important, not just for wine, for almost any type of product, really. And so I wonder if this is starting to creep into the cannabis industry or if not yet, whether you foresee this being a big thing. In other words, the reality of there being differences in not necessarily quality, or that could be one of the things, but different taste profiles or other, not even sure what the dimensions would be. But in wine, there's a whole bunch of taste profiles that come up. If that's going to become a bigger thing, because, you know, as an industry gets bigger and certainly as it becomes more national and there's more choices for consumers, it's hard to figure out what the right one is. Uh, if it's a, if, you know, if your doctor's prescribing it, it's one thing, but if it's recreational, it's a whole other story. This is where there are a lot of similarities to the alcohol industry, whether it's wine or being in Colorado, I'll use the craft beer or just the beer analogy because we're big in craft beer here. You do have, you have the mass produced marijuana that some people are okay with that will be in a segment of this going forward. So you will eventually have the Budweiser type, Anheuser-Busch or Coors, whatever you want to use as a mass appeal cannabis. Uh, and, and then, and you do see that now, right? There's, there's a market for that. And there's companies that are do that. They're getting economies of scale and they're going for that kind of mass market appeal. But cannabis has a long history of leaning into quality, leaning into different types of profiles. So you mentioned wine. There were certain things in cannabis. It's like terpenes and that's the smell of it. That also goes to the taste of it when you inhale it or you're eating something with cannabis in it. So there's a lot of focus on terpenes and how that changes the effect. There's something called the entourage effect and that's THC and the CBD and other parts of the cannabis plant all working together to give you whatever type of feeling you're looking for. So a huge part of this is tied to quality. So what you're seeing is a lot of companies are trying to set themselves apart more than ever right now by leaning into quality and saying, hey, we're going to do it sun grown. So that means we're going to grow our cannabis outside, which does give it different properties and different flavors and terpene effects. If you can do that in some states, you can't grow outside. Again, we go back to these regulations and some you have to do it in warehouses or greenhouses, but you've got companies that are saying, okay, we're sun grown and that's how they're distinguishing themselves. Others are putting a lot of science into their development, their cultivation and the development of products. In some cases, they're taking away the cannabis taste. They're putting it into a gummy or a chocolate or some other edible thing. In other cases, they're enhancing that so that you feel like you're using cannabis more because some people appreciate that. So there's a lot of market niches here. And where it's all going to develop, I think, as I was saying before, you will have the bigger names that are not as well known for high quality. They're known for being there and getting the base product out there. And those might be some of the leaders in terms of size. But you are going to have as far out as I can see. And probably the better business practice is you're going to have a lot of players that are focused on high quality premium cannabis. And there's absolutely a market for that. And there will be going forward. I mean, now you have companies that are developing products for women. You could make certain edibles or other types of products that help with menstrual pain. And women prefer different types of consumption. So it might be like really high class vape pens that are engraved and almost look like jewelry, right? Or just high end. So whether it's the actual plant or the infused products or the accessories, there's a bunch of different markets to tap. And I'd just look to any other part of society, right? Or any other business. It's going to mimic what we see everywhere. You'll have players in the high-end luxury area. You'll have the big mass market producers. Then you'll have some that are likely coming in as cheap as possible that may or may not last because their product isn't very good. But we're seeing all of that play out right now. What's fascinating about this is because we have seen these types of trends and actions at a very high level for a long, long time in so many other industries. Maybe that's why some of the people in these other industries are now entering or have been entering the cannabis industry with their own background expertise. 
So we've seen it. And I guess the prediction is, well, why should this be so different than other industries where brand counts, where flavor profiles count, where marketing counts, where positioning counts, where niche counts, all the things that are standard business practices. You're absolutely right. It won't be that different. We're seeing that in the early days, companies didn't pay that much attention to branding. I mean, I've got pictures of the first edibles I saw in stores, and it was like a brownie in a Ziploc bag that someone had at home with a little my name is tag, you know, where they just scrawled out the name of the product and slapped it on, right? And now you look at the products and the branding and marketing is getting really sophisticated. It's been about four or five years and companies are now finding they have to invest in branding and marketing to set themselves apart. You didn't need that. It was kind of a, if you build it, they'll come. If I open up a store, people are going to line up out the door because they've never bought cannabis before, quote unquote, legally. Now it's different. And I will say really quickly that on the retail side, you also see this bifurcation of stores trying to hit different markets. So some might take on the hippie vibe. And you walk into it, there's Grateful Dead playing and a Jimi Hendrix poster under a black light and beads hanging down and patchouli oil. You know, like there are some that really look like that, more so on the Western part of the country. And that's their thing. That's who they're aiming for. And then there's others you walk in and it looks like an Apple store and everything's high tech and you have a scanner and you can touch it to products and it'll give you all the details and you can put it in your electronic cart and then you go up and buy it. And it's like sleek and modern. Others are more casual and it's like a loungy feel, maybe more like a Starbucks. And then you have others that are more more clinical, especially in the medical side, that feel more like a pharmacy or a doctor's office. You know, they're trying to tie it into the health aspect. So all over the board, even on that retail side now. That's really interesting. And that is different than a lot of other industries in that there's, again, different regulations, but still trying to figure out what the right messaging should be. When you want to buy, let's say, a phone, a mobile device, not every store looks like the Apple store, but actually almost all of them are not that far apart. Good point. But here you have a lot more variety. So yeah, it's still early. It's still somewhat early days. I want to talk about safety and public policy for a minute. So in what way is the consumption of cannabis similar or different to cigarettes? In what regard? Well, if you smoke a joint or smoke a cigarette, we know smoking cigarettes are very, very bad for you. What do we say about the equivalent when it comes to cannabis? I mean, it depends how much cannabis you smoke, right? (laughs) If you're puffing on it all day and you're smoking the flower like a cigarette, it's probably no better. Again, there hasn't been a lot of research into anything tied to marijuana, even on that health side. And it's ridiculous that for decades in our history as a country, we haven't researched it like we would research anything else that people can consume, especially something that can help you. So honestly, I don't know. There's different studies that say, oh, smoking marijuana can be just as bad as cigarettes, even if you're not doing it as much, even if you're not smoking the equivalent of like 20 a day like you would with cigarettes. I don't know. I'm not the expert on that. What I can tell you is that there are so many different ways to consume cannabis now that it's a moot point for a lot of people because they don't inhale it. So you can do it in vape form now where you have oil and you heat it up. You know, it's just like an e-cig. We're not even sure what e-cigs do to you, right? We had the big crisis with your lungs. But on the marijuana side, you could do that too. So you're taking out those oils, the THC and smoking that, but you're not smoking the actual flower which might be healthier, which might not, just like cigarettes and tobacco, we don't know. But a lot of people are using other forms of it. The edibles market has taken over, I think flour now is about 60% of the market. So flour is the actual plant. That's what people in their minds see as marijuana smoking, right? That's taking the plant and rolling it up in a joint or putting it in a bong or a pipe or whatever triggers in your mind. That's only 60% of the market now. It depends, varies by state. I'm using a general number. Is What we've seen is that the industry has become very innovative because they're responding to patients and consumers who want different ways. Like, should a medical patient who's using it for that reason be smoking cannabis? Probably not. So there's pills. There's topicals, there's lotions, creams, there's an array. You go into these stores and it's amazing to see the types of products there now. Gummies are very, very popular, the chocolates, but there's mints. There's so many different ways to consume and use cannabis that if you are worried about the health impact of inhaling something, which probably isn't good over the long run, like I don't know the health data, but I'd rather not do it. You can do it in other ways. So that's what we see people doing. It's not like a cigarette where you're inhaling something. I guess you can get nicotine in other ways, but with cannabis, it's a lot different. So these other alternative forms of consumption, these alternative products have really taken off. The other thing you sometimes hear, still hear, I think, is that marijuana is an entry drug. And maybe that's when you reference at the beginning, you know, in some statutes, it's equivalent to heroin. Is that what's going on, say, in the States Maybe there are 11 states that have not legalized cannabis for medicinal purposes. Is that kind of the mindset there? 
To clarify, cannabis is a Schedule One drug federally. The other Schedule One drugs include heroin. So that's a federal, that's how the government views it, is like heroin. Here's what we've seen. When we started in 2011, there were 10, 11 states that have legalized medical. There are 39 now, almost quadrupled. There was no recreational, and now you have getting close to half the country has legalized recreational. 19, we'll have a couple more this year. We'll be at half in the next two years. So what you've seen is the public and lawmakers basically all across the spectrum have realized this isn't what we thought it was. And they may not say, I want to smoke marijuana or use cannabis, but they're saying it's not what we were told it was. It's not this devil drug that is like heroin or that leads to giant societal problems. And that's why you have all these states that have legalized. Initially, most of these came through the ballot box. So these were voters. These were the majority of voters saying, we're okay, let's legalize this for medical or recreational. Now you're also having lawmakers do it. So they're not even turning it to the population, just saying, we're going to legalize. And that's what you've seen the trend playing out is now more state lawmakers are legalizing medical and then recreational. The holdout states, especially on the medical side, very few now. And we'll have more that legalized this year, but it's kind of a mix of factors. It's really the red states. Even those are changing. I mean, Oklahoma has legalized medical cannabis and it's one of the biggest markets in the country now. And it doesn't have a lot of strong regulations. So it's actually got a lot of problems, but you're even seeing red states legalize South Dakota legalized medical and recreational at the same time in the election recently. So it's not even a partisan issue so much anymore, but I will say the holdout states that have not legalized yet do have these kind of traditional, conservative, old school mentalities around cannabis. And honestly, a lot of times it's probably not even the population, it's the lawmakers. They're not legalizing it. They're throwing wrenches in the ability for organizers to gain enough signatures to get it on the ballot. There's been overt attempts to sink these. Mississippi legalized in the 2020 election and there's a opposition group that came out and they found this stupid technicality that had been in their law for, I think, over a decade, it would have affected any kind of ballot measure of this type, but they pulled it out for cannabis because they didn't like cannabis and they were able to sink it. So even though the voters voted in favor of medical marijuana legalization, a group found a technicality and the Supreme Court overruled it. Again, this argument could have been used for many, many ballot measures that passed previously, but someone brought it out for this cannabis one Mm -hmm. and they overturned it. It's things like that that are preventing states Now, in that case, the great thing is that they have now legalized medical anyway, because the legislature went back and said, okay, the population voted for it. We would actually rather control this than have it go back to the ballot. So we're going to come up with our own legalization measure. So that's what you find happening is that there are pockets of resistance. There are some governors or some lawmakers that try to overturn these in deep red states. South Dakota, same thing. They're trying to overturn the recreational measure, even though voters supported it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you got 39 states that have legalized medical, I think it's clear where the nation as a whole stands. I mean, it's a very big issue because for a very long time, being caught with drugs, even a tiny amount, could put you in jail. And I think the data are overwhelming on who ended up in jail. And they were young black men more than anyone else. There have been more and more recognition of this the media and some pretty influential books as well. Actually keeping it illegal and then prosecuting for this when it's completely legit in 80% of the country is really a public policy scandal, frankly. Even if you're not a fan of cannabis, the fact that it's been used in this way has been demonstrated being used in this way to incarcerate so many people is really bad, is really unfortunate. And so hopefully we'll be going in the direction of at least trying to regulate it. I mean, it speaks to the illegal drug trade as well. That doesn't go away when you don't regulate. In fact, I was going to ask you about that. And I mean, I don't know if you know, but what has happened in states that have regulated recreational? Is there still a thriving illegal drug trade? Because now the government's competing with them. Well, that's a great question because, and this ties into your early one about, is this a gateway drug? I don't know if it's a gateway drug. I know that there's plenty of research that shows that in states that have legalized cannabis, opioid abuse has gone down. Again, you can look at different research and back up your point in any type of discussion. So I can't say whether it's a gateway drug. I can tell you for a lot of people, (laughs) it's not. The people behind the $25 billion in sales, a lot of them are soccer moms and elderly people looking for pain relief or people trying to get away from alcohol. So I'm sure for some people, it's a gateway drug, just like alcohol could be a gateway drug to other things as well. But you never hear anyone talk about, hey, is alcohol a gateway drug? It's a weird argument. But to your point, there are problems with the industry. I come from a journalism background, so I'm not saying rah, rah, cannabis, everything's great. There's issues that have to be worked out. In some states, it depends on the regulatory framework. In some states like Oklahoma, I mentioned them before, it's kind of a wild west. 
It's very easy to get in the industry. Oversight of the regulations is very lax. There's way too many people. There's no caps on the licenses. So there's a lot of people involved opening stores and grows. And what you have is there's a thriving black market there, illicit market for cannabis. And that's a problem. The point of legalization regulation is to blunt the black market, the illicit market that we all know has been going on forever and to put regulations around it, to make it appetizing for people and to create jobs and tax revenue and all that. But in some states, the illicit market is still very strong. California is another one because, you know, what happens is you set the taxes too high or you don't enforce the regulations and people go back to the illicit market. There's other states where it's had a massive dent in it. And yes, there will always be an illicit market for cannabis to varying degrees, depending on how the regulations and states are learning. They don't know. They're trying to figure out what can stamp out the illicit market to the best way possible. And to your point about the wider underground drug trade, I don't know. I know some people that were slinging marijuana have moved to other things. Others have gotten in the marijuana industry on the legit side and they've won licenses and they've received support. On my podcast, Seed the CEO, I just talked to a guy who was in the illicit market and now runs a multi-state cannabis company. And he was in jail too in the past, but he found a path forward, a legitimate way to do this. So some people are transitioning into it. Some people aren't. It's just kind of all over the board, but it's not like this just is a stake in the heart of the illicit drug trade market when you legalize. It can be done to really blunt that and to swing it towards the legit above ground market, but it doesn't completely stamp it out. Yeah. Part of it, I would think, is pricing, isn't it? I mean, if your legal price is lower than your street price, then of course, anyone who's aware of that will go to the dispensary. But that requires, I guess, approval of a big enough market in every state. Maybe going back to California that you mentioned before, given the size of the population, the size of the market, are there enough retail outlets? Is there enough approval on this kind of regulated marketplace to meet the market demand? I don't know the answer, but I'm going to guess not at all because there's a supply and demand. There's a pricing and supply and demand. These principles are absolutely at work here as well. It can be that California is unique in that California came late to the table with regulations. So California was the pariah of the cannabis world because it had this big medical cannabis market and it didn't have statewide regulations. Every other state had gone that way. And California is just this crazy wild west, really unorganized. And so the people involved in some cases were giving it a bad name because there were no regulations. So you have these crappy, shady, fly-by-night operations that just put a black eye on the industry. So they've came late to the party. They regulated that. They legalized recreational, put regulations around it. But it's just a mess. The regulations are all over the board. They're very hard to comply with. So to your point, the tax situation, the taxes are so high there that in order for the companies to stay in business, they have to pass along those taxes. So the price is high in the legal market. Guess what? Then you've got people going to the illicit market, going back to it because they're like, well, I'm not paying a 30% premium for this when I can just go down here. And is what you have is there's not enough enforcement. So the people who aren't following the rules are getting away with it. The ones who are following the rules and paying all the money for regulations and having the tax onto their product, they're being punished and penalized because they can't compete with the illicit market. So California is kind of a disaster right now. Luckily, most states are not in that situation. And especially in the East Coast, they're very regulatory scheme is much different. But these are the problems that can happen. You talk to anyone in California right now in this business and they'll tell you it's not a good place to be, even though it's the largest market in the world and the opportunity should be immense. It is not a good situation. And then when you layer on top of that, because this is federally illegal, you also have this tax issue I mentioned earlier where they can't take business tax deductions that are common for every business. So to actually break even, let alone become profitable under this type of scenario, especially in California, you can see, again, how difficult this can become and how different the state markets are. Each one is its own environment, its own climate, its own industry. I think that's a big takeaway from our conversation. It's very unusual in that regard compared to other industries. Just one last thing about California. Is there a recognition among regulators, among legislature, that things are a big mess, they're not accomplishing what they wish to accomplish, and there's change afoot? There are among some pockets, but, you know, California is like 10 states in one. So every area of California has different factors and different attitudes at play and different leaders. And so I don't think no one knows how to fix it. I think there's some acknowledgement that this isn't working how they thought, but no one right now is standing up in the right way and has the power to actually push through meaningful change. So a lot of frustration there. 
But then you've got markets like New York, which just legalized and New Jersey. And there's a lot of high optimism and they're baking social equity into their programs. So this isn't going into the hands of just basically white people with access to capital. They're making sure that there's room for small players like mom and pops. And it's not just the big companies that can come in. Lots of experiments going on across the country. And we'll see in 10 years which models could become this de facto blueprint going forward. It won't be California, but (laughs) with some degree of capital constraint. It is tougher for smaller players to get in. And then when you're established and you figure out how to do this and you've developed some of these licensing partnership ecosystem arrangements that you described earlier, and then you look at other industries where consolidation always occurs, where come in a highly fragmented industry, it is almost always, if not always the case, like an axiom of business, that there will be attempts by someone, by some players, sometimes even outside parties, but could be, you know, someone in the industry right now to buy and grow and become gigantic. Is that what you foresee over the next 10 years or five years? It's already started. It's already started. Took a while to get here. Not a while because the industry isn't that old, but last couple of years, you've seen a consolidation push. You've seen companies with the sophistication and with the capital behind them, as I mentioned earlier, to be able to pull this off. The reason there's bigger MSOs is because they started acquiring in other states. In some cases, acquiring distressed assets. In some cases, they're acquiring top of the market to get into a new state. In other cases, they're buying their other large multi-state operators. The latest iteration is now you're seeing consolidation at the top. It's not just the top companies picking off ones down here. Now you're seeing the merger of equals. So to your point, yeah, this is common in every industry and we're seeing it here. We're seeing it in Canada too. At our trade show, MJ BizCon, I always predict what's to come in the next year. I've been doing this for seven or eight years. And one of my predictions for this year was that we were going to see several of these massive mega mergers between companies in the space. And in fact, one has already now happened this year. You've had three or four of these in the U.S. You've had two or three in Canada. We've seen this story, right? We've seen how an industry evolves. And this one will be very similar in that regard. That will lead to what I mentioned before, the Budweiser's, the McDonald's, the Starbucks, the insert big company name here. Mm -hmm. That will play out and you'll have a very well-known couple brands across the country. Maybe they all have the same sign and the same feel when you walk into the store, the same types of products or an infused product brand that's like a a Coca-Cola, that's like a Nestle that you can get in any state and it's certain line of gummy bears or whatever it is. But then you'll have these thriving local kind of craft. When you see this trend, unless you can create a kind of real sustainable advantage that comes from some platform, ecosystem platform that you see in tech, you know, with an Amazon or a Google, you become really, really big. You gain a lot of market power. But there's over time, plenty of small players that emerge with different business models, with a unique product, with a different technology. And maybe that's happening now a little bit. But I think when we get to the state of maybe, I don't know, three giants, let's say the game is not over because you keep getting these small players. And then sometimes those giants, they don't innovate very well. And you look at a company like General Motors and you have a little Tesla and a Rivian and they're completely transforming the entire world. So that's the industry 3.0 maybe or 4.0. But consolidation is not the end of the game even though many of the consolidators often think, okay, we've won, it's over. It's a very dangerous approach. I like this idea you said about the predictions that you make given where you sit and you talk to so many people. Are there a couple of major trends that are going on now and that you anticipate becoming even, you know, accelerating in the next year or so? I think it's the consolidation, the emergence of some large key top players with a lot of distance between the next tier, like we were just talking about. I think it's further going to move into the product innovation side. People don't want to inhale anything. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but as we get more of the mainstream CPG thinking into this industry, there will likely be a lot of new types of products coming out. And you're seeing that now. Some of the bigger trends are fast acting. So edibles in the past, traditionally you take an infused product with cannabis in it and it might take an hour, it might take two hours until you feel the effects. So there's countless stories of people trying an edible, like, okay, I have a chocolate bar and I'm supposed to eat one square, right? And I eat one square and I wait an hour and it's not doing anything. So I eat another and then I eat another, then I eat another. And then it all kicks in and that person is glued to the couch for eight hours. They can't move. Um, One of the trends that the industry realized was people want to feel the effects a lot quicker. You don't want to drink a beer or have a cocktail and feel it two hours later. You're doing it to feel it now. So same thing especially for pain relief too, on the cannabis side. So now you have these fast acting edibles. 
That's one of the trends that the industry is seeing and responding to and putting into product development. You take this in an infused product and it works in 10 minutes, not two hours. You also see beverages have a lot of hype around them now, a cannabis infused beverages, and that could be fruit punch. It could be a soda. It could be like a seltzer with THC in it. I don't know where that market's going to go. There have been infused beverages in this industry for a while, but they're starting to get more attention. More innovation is going in behind them, more R&D, more money. So those are the types of things we're seeing. And flour will always be a big part of this industry, but I think you're going to see a lot of innovation on everything else. The other part of what I see is that science going to be a bigger part of the success of companies going forward where it wasn't involved really at all in the past. And now it's like, in science, I'm using broad, like how are you cultivating cannabis? And what best practices are you bringing? How are you understanding the science behind the plant to improve yields, lower your energy use, create products that people want, create ones with terpenes, like we mentioned before, and high quality. And then science behind how you're developing your products. How do you keep them consistent so that in a bottle of gummy bears, this one doesn't have more cannabis than this one? That's a big problem in the industry. So it's using science behind product formulation, behind R&D, behind cultivation. And the companies that do that well and fully understand what they're doing from that side, I think are going to set themselves apart. So that's how I think we'll see this industry evolve. And then lastly, I'd just say more state legalization. There will be two, three, four more states that legalize medical or recreational this year. Eventually, we'll get to the tipping point federally. You think we'd already be there where something would have changed, where the government would have done something to change 100-year-old cannabis laws. But I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know if it'll be next year or in five years. What are the states that you think are about to go legalize either for medical or recreational? It's hard to say. I hate to predict the exact states because it can change. There's always a dark horse or two that come out every year that's really on no one's radar. And then all of a sudden they legalize. Lawmakers quickly push through something or it gets on the ballot. On the medical side, there's not a lot left. There's only 11 states left that have it. A lot of them in the South. I won't pick specific states, but I would say in almost every state that hasn't legalized, there's an attempt underway to get a measure on the ballot or to convince lawmakers to move something forward. But I do think we'll see a handful of states in the election coming up later this year, but also with lawmakers legalizing as well. What did the latest surveys say, federal or national basis on the percentage of the population, or at least the people answering these surveys that say that cannabis should be legal either for medical or recreational purposes? That's been another change in the industry where you've seen poll after poll show that over 90% of Americans back medical marijuana legalization. I'm not cherry picking a certain poll. There's been numerous polls in recent years by different types of organizations with different leanings. If you think that they're not objective, it's pretty clear that across the country, over 90% of Americans think medical cannabis should be legalized. I mean, it's a landslide, right? Federal government hasn't done anything, but got the vast majority of the population. When it comes to legalization in general of marijuana, especially on the recreational side, it's about 60% now. These are fairly consistent. You can go up and down a few percentage points based on the poll, but fairly consistent, whether it's Fox News poll or a CNN poll or a marijuana group poll or an opposition group poll, they're all falling within the same sphere. It's way over 50%. And does that vary a lot across states as you talk about some of the red states? Medical doesn't seem to vary that much. Even in states where it's not legal, support is really strong usually. And in some cases, these measures have passed by a landslide when voters go to the polls. Recreational, I think, varies a bit more. I think there's still a lot of hesitation where while 60% of the population thinks it should be legal, there's a big chunk of that 40% that really don't think it should. I think a lot of that is just not being familiar with it because if you go to the states that have legalized recreational, if you have a good regulatory structure around it, you're getting reputable players involved. You're getting the right checks and balances on the industry. It looks like anything else. It's not like these storefronts have undesirables, you know, lounging about, falling asleep in front of it, passing out, eating Doritos, you know, hassling people, bumping into each other, whatever people think this industry might bring. It doesn't. Again, some of, a lot of these places look like a Starbucks or an Apple store. And the people going in, sure, there's people who have consumed 
cannabis their entire life and might fit your stereotype of them. But there's tons of people that don't. There's the soccer moms. There's the lawyers getting cannabis instead of a six pack or a bottle of wine, professionals, elderly, or people just in their 20s, again, who don't want to drink alcohol or use other substances. So I think that the resistance is largely tied to stereotypes of what this would look like, whether if it would lead to a terrible society where everything is crime is up and traffic accidents are up and the whole community goes down the toilet. So I think once people see it in other states, they become more comfortable. Now, that's not going to convince everyone. And people have a right to their opinion. Again, it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything. But I'll tell you, it creates jobs. Absolutely. We can see that. It's created hundreds of thousands of jobs. It creates business opportunities. It creates tax money that, if used effectively, can go to schools and roads. And we've seen that in many states and can revive communities. These companies take over dilapidated buildings and put money into them. They can revive neighborhoods. And guess what? At the end of the day, it does help a lot of people. A lot of people do use this medically and they swear by it and nothing else will work or doesn't have the side effects or they don't get addicted. And then honestly, if people use it for fun and they're not hurting anyone else, not hurting themselves, who cares? So that seems to be the general mentality. And if you get around the industry, you see more people start to accept it. So we'll see on the recreational side how far that can go. One last quick question and then just kind of wrapping up. And since I'm a professor, I'll make it into a multiple choice for which it's the right answer is 100% your opinion. So you can't be wrong. Right. But I'm curious about it. If you were to look five to 10 years down the line, which industry will be the one to own or control the cannabis industry? So I'll say choice A is cannabis players, specific cannabis players. Choice B is pharma, big pharma. Choice C is consumer packaged goods, the Procter and Gambles of the world. And choice D would be, you know, cigarette or alcohol companies. And I guess I'll give you an E, none of the above. I would honestly, this might seem like a cheap way out. So maybe you'd fail me in this. <laughs> I'd say all of the above. I do not think in five to 10 years, there will be a clear quote unquote owner of the industry. I think you will absolutely have the ones that grew up in the cannabis space and made a name for themselves that still retain their independence, I guess, from other giant companies or industries. I think alcohol and tobacco, absolutely. Once the federal situation changes, and I'm not talking pure legalization, I'm talking either allowing the states clearly under federal law to decide which way they want to go to legalize and then regulate. That's just codified into law or just something as saying this industry can access banking services. It's normalized in that degree, which I consider pseudo legalization. That's the more likely step. If either of those happens, the floodgates are open and then you are going to have alcohol and tobacco. Alcohol and tobacco have already been getting involved, especially in Canada. Constellation Brands, one of the biggest alcohol distributors in the world, made a massive investment into a Canadian company. It didn't end well, but there will be pieces that alcohol and tobacco absolutely get involved in. There will be pieces, big pharma, less so, I think, right now. Big pharma will likely take a bigger role in psychedelics and the cannabis industry overseas. But there will be pharma aspects. There will be the cannabis people. There will be the alcohol and tobacco. And CPG will be a big player. They are absolutely ready to come into this industry when they feel that they can. One of the things that makes this industry so interesting to me is that last question that all of those different categories and their giant categories could be players, that this could fit, that this kind of nascent industry on cannabis could fit into these four or five different categories is pretty interesting because that's not the way it is for most industries that are starting. It is, and the fact that all of them would have a place in this and potentially a strong place, you know, it shows you how diverse the industry is. Yeah. And to your point, how different it is than others. Chris, what a great conversation and an education on the cannabis industry and your point of view. I'd like to do one final quick wrap up question, which is not about, in this case, the cannabis industry or whatever topic we're talking about, but about you and your own career. It's an advice question, but it's the advice that says if you could magically go back in time, and I don't know if you need to smoke a joint to do that. You could imagine that. <laughs> if you could magically go back in time to when you were 20 years old or some such thing, and you could go over to that 20-year-old Chris Walsh and lean over and say, you know what, Chris, there's one thing I, I want you to know about the world or about business or about life. What would be that little lesson you'd want to share to yourself back when you were 20 years old? I learned it over the course of my career, and I think it came at the right time for me. But I would have told myself, don't be afraid to take risks with your career. 
because I had my career all mapped out. I was going to be a journalist and I wanted to eventually try and get to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And so I had a path of how you do that. You started a smaller newspaper, then you get to a Metro one and then you get a lucky break and then you get up there. And I kind of had that mapped out and didn't want to diverge from that and didn't want to take risks. And the world changed, right? The state and the health of newspapers and the media industry changed. And then I found myself eventually not wanting to go to those places because everything changed. But I couldn't have imagined earlier leaving what I was trained to do in school and college, right? So a lot of your students potentially have a career path in mind. They have a major. They're saying, this is kind of what I want to do. Well, guess what? You can go way outside those bounds over the course of your career. And some of the greatest success stories, people that I've talked to, and now also myself, have been those who have gone in a path they never charted out in their mind. Basically, yes, I'm still involved in media, but we're really market research and a trade show. And for me, it was really deciding mainstream media wasn't where I was going to go. I'm going to go back, get my MBA and see what comes next. Honestly, the grief I got when I told people, hey, yeah, I'm part of a startup. I'm the launch editor for a company that's going to cover the marijuana industry. You know, in 2011, coming from my background, there were definitely some people, some former colleagues who were like, uh, okay, like, why are you throwing your career in the toilet? You're never coming back from this. But I took the risk because I wanted to do something different. And, you know, I didn't make as much when I took the job and could have been a blight on your resume, but it's been anything but. So take risks and go in different directions, either actively or as opportunities arise. Great advice. Great story, Chris. Chris Love, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.